All right. This morning, I want you to start off thinking about your life, how your life is kind of like a backpack and that God designs you to be able to bear the load of your responsibilities, uh, your experiences in life, both positive and negative. But there are limits, right? That, that there's only so much that you and I can carry within that backpack and that there's times that we accumulate stress and suffering and situations that exceed our capacity. And so we reach a breaking point. And when that happens, there's a tendency for us to respond in one of three ways. Number one, sometimes we, re- we respond by, by fighting. We just tell ourselves, I'm just going to power through it. And so we run through all these obstacles and all these burdens and until we either get run down or we break down. Secondly, we respond with fright, that we start to experience panic and paralysis. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. And I have a hard time getting out of bed and I have a hard time making decisions because I feel overwhelmed. And then thirdly, of course, sometimes we respond through flight. Well, I'm just going to quit. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to quit my friends. I'm going to quit my marriage. I'm going to quit my commitments, quit God, quit my church, throw my phone into the ocean, and then offload everything because it's too much for me to bear. And so the question for you this morning is, what if there is a far better alternative? And then We're looking this morning at the book of James, and Pastor James here, he's going to teach us instead of the way of fight, fright, or flight, that instead we can take the way of faith. And what that looks like is to be able to take the load that God has called for your life, not beyond it. Like a lot of times we we experience catastrophic things that happen that are beyond our ability to manage, but to take the load that God has given us and called for us, for our lives, and by faith be able to carry it. So let's discover how by turning to James chapter 5. We're in this series called Vibrant, where we've been learning in the book of James that there is a faith that works even when life doesn't. That as we're tempted or tested by trials and temptations, that there's a vibrant faith that can persevere by living out God's wisdom in both our perspectives and our practices. In other words, does my life match my beliefs? And this week, we are in the second to last, for those of you who are keeping count, uh, we are in the second to last message in this series. So we're very excited. Um, Pastor James is starting to wrap things up in this letter to the believers. And so we saw that over the last couple of weeks that he talked about life's uncertainty and making plans in light of God's eternity, in light of God and eternity. And a warning, don't be unrighteous with your riches because there's consequences in light of God and eternity. And this week, he turns our attention towards suffering. That as we love and trust and follow Jesus, Are we able to bear the appropriate God-given weights of life in light of eternity? And so we're in James chapter 5, picking up from verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so, Pastor James is writing to these Jewish believers who are bearing an enormous burden. You see, they started out as this large church in the city of Jerusalem, the central church, actually, of the early Christians, that first century Christians. But now it's been scattered throughout the region because of great hostility, persecution, and pressure. At great cost to their friendships, to their families, to their finances, and to their future. And so they're asking the question, how are we supposed to carry such a heavy load? 
And so in the beginning of verse 7, Pastor James says to his congregation, be patient, brothers. And I don't know about you, but I don't like hearing that because we live in a world where I'm very impatient, right? We don't walk to places, we drive. And then we honk at people because they're going too slow. Whatever we want, when we want something, desire something, we don't have to delay our gratification. We can buy it immediately. We click a button online and then we receive it tomorrow. And if it doesn't come in time, then we get irritated if it's a a day late. If we're bored, we can stream endless amounts of entertainment. And as you're watching something, you can fast forward through the boring parts. And some of you, how long is this sermon going to be? Longer than you hoped, okay? And And so when we think about being patient, we ask Pastor James, or the congregation might be asking Pastor James, well, how long do I need to be patient? He says in verse 7, till the coming of the Lord. That's a long time. For us today, it's already been 2,000 years. But what I want you to see here is it's less about the length and more about the perspective. You see, in the second half of verse 7, the perspective uh, James has is that your life is like a farm. That things grow according to their season, and you have to wait for the early rains in Palestine to produce that first crop of spring, and then the later rains to come to produce that fall harvest. And so what happens there is that you can't simply plant some seeds and then get fruit the next week because just because you want it. What's happening? I planted stuff. I want it to happen now. No, the way that things work is that God makes things grow in their season and you cannot rush fruitfulness. And so we might say to ourselves, I want to grow and I want to mature more quickly or I want my, my friend or my spouse to grow and mature more quickly or I want to get out of this rough season of life more quickly. And what this passage is saying is that God has processed that sometimes there are things that are beyond our control and we simply have to wait upon the sovereignty of a good God. And so what happens to us is too often we look at these overwhelming burdens of life and we think that, well, maybe that's a sign from God to quit what I'm doing. Or maybe we take it as a sign to quit on God. That I saw this sign and it opened up my mind and I'm now happy living without you. I've left you and I saw the sign and it opened up my eyes, Lord. I don't need you. No, you didn't. You saw a season, not a sign. A season that's temporary. And so the big idea comes to us in verse 8. When the burden is heavy, like the farmer, we await and anticipate the next season's fruit because we are to be patient in suffering in light of the Lord's imminent return. And he says to us in that verse that how do we do that? How do we be patient in light of Jesus' return? He says, establish your heart. The word there means to set your heart on something, to put your mind and your heart on this perspective. What kind of perspective? With Jesus' return, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, he says that there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. It says that Jesus will wipe away every tear, that all the former things, the painful things will pass, and the renewal of all things will finally come. And so the question we want to ask ourselves is, what season am I in? And how do I need to ask God or live out God's patience for me? Now, like a farmer, I continue to till the soil and plant the seeds and and pull the weeds. Because even when we're going through a rough or dry season, we wait upon God to bring the rain, to bring the relief, and to bring the rescue to us. We set our hearts on that truth and on that joy that that he will return at some point and that gives us strength to bear today's suffering because we await tomorrow's season. That out of our toils and out of our troubles, there's fruitfulness and fulfillment coming. 
That's what the day of the Lord means. That's what it means when Jesus returns. Okay, that's nice theological thought, but, but how does that kind of faith and patience really play out practically in our real lives? And so James is going to look at three specific areas that tend to be most affected by our heavy burdens. Verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So let's stop right there for a moment. True or false? When affliction and anxiety overwhelm us, do you tend to be less patient with other people? That's weird. Some of you are nodding, shaking your head no. And the person sitting right next to you is shaking their heads, yes, you are. <laughs> well, I want you to think about this way. If you have a bad day, there's a tendency for most people to take it out on other people because counseling tells us that hurt people tend to hurt people. So what that means is that the suffering you experience in life, it kind of strips and wears down the insulation, that protective insulation, and kind of exposes you as a live wire so that you zap everyone that comes in contact with you. And so what that might look like is our attitude and our words and our tone grow curt or critical or judgmental towards people around us. Or we complain about people behind their back because we're just venting after a bad day. Or you might say, well, I don't grumble against people. I don't say anything. But our silence can sometimes be just another form of violence. It's just that we're expressing our grumbling by giving somebody a cold shoulder. Does that make sense? Instead of being able to talk things out and work things out in a kind way. And so as we're called to be patient in our hardships, Jesus is also calling us to be patient with one another. Because I wonder how many of us find that as our patience decreases along with our burden increasing, right? That the more you have burdens in your life, the more your patience tends to decrease with other people. And yet, when we vent our irritation and our frustration on other people, what begins to happen? We start to ruin those relationships, and all we're doing is piling on additional burdens on top of the ones that are already weighing us down in life. And so, as pressure comes against the church in Jerusalem, in James' day, as these brothers and sisters in Christ, they begin grumbling against one another. God, why won't you give me better friends or a better small group or a better spouse? Isn't my life already hard enough as it is? And now you've given me these people who are annoying, who take from me, who are inconsiderate to me. And God is saying back to them, maybe you need to be patient with them, just as I am incredibly patient, forgiving, and forbearing with you. And so in the second half of verse 9, he talks about this way. If you're grumbling against a brother or sister in Christ in an unfair way, unkind way, unholy way, that you are going to be held accountable to Jesus, the true judge, the great judge at his imminent return. And now, some of us, maybe you are a, you're a follower of Christ, you're a Christian, and you're thinking like, well, that doesn't apply to me because like, uh, now that I believe in Jesus, and, and so I, I don't face any type of judgment. But the way that it works is if you're a follower of Christ, yes, we're saved by faith, not by our words, not by our works, but we are also held accountable to the Lord in what we do in life. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, with his return, people will have to give an account for every careless word they speak. I don't know about you, but that's really convicting and painful for me to hear. Because this is probably the area that I struggle with the most personally. And so when we are living in light of Jesus' return, 
It produces godly patience as a remedy to grumbling in relationships. You see, grumbling says, well, everyone's a jerk because they don't read my mind. They don't see how I'm hurting. They don't think my way and they're not going my way in the midst of all my pains and struggles. Godly patience says everyone has a load, a burden, a weight that they carry. And so what they say and do may get on my nerves because I am having a bad day or maybe because they are. But that we're all on the same journey. We're all walking with Jesus towards the same kingdom, but we're not there yet. And so along the way, be patient with one another because God is still working out the fruit in you, in me, in them. Be patient because he's not done yet. And so when the load is heavy in your life, how are your relationships? In light of Jesus and his return and his judgment, can you take a step back and say to yourself, maybe it's not everyone else who's infuriating or insensitive. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the one being insensitive to people here because I'm irritated by my stress over there. Maybe it's not everybody else. And then we practice what James talks about in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that I would be slow to speak and slow to anger because I know that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So ask yourself, when the load is heavy in your life, how are your relationships? Secondly, when the load is heavy, how's your worship? Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You notice the words throughout this passage we've read so far, patience, 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 now steadfastness, steadfastness. And so what we see at the beginning of this passage is talking about suffering and patience. And we know that They're kind of like oil and water. They don't naturally mix together. And so James provides real concrete examples for us to be able to model after. Excuse me. So in verses 10 and 11, he says, Consider these Old Testament prophets who remained steadfast is the key word there. Now, I want you to see that this is different from the word patience earlier in the passage. See, patience is an internal attitude towards people and towards situations that remain patient inside. Steadfastness is an external action of perseverance, of endurance. So what were the prophets steadfast in doing? It says in verse 10, they were speaking in the name of the Lord. In other words, that they were steadfast and enduring in being faithful, in telling the truth and living the truth of God in the face of tremendous adversity in their lives. So the picture we paint, we oftentimes think of like these great Old Testament heroes um, who worshiped the Lord and were blessed for it. I want you to consider almost all of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. Zechariah wrote a book of the Bible, stoned to death by the people of God. Isaiah wrote one of the most magnificent books of the Bible that prophesied the coming of the Lord Jesus. He was sawn in two. Jeremiah, he preached repentance to the people of God for 40 years 
and they rejected him. Not a single person converted or turned, turned towards the Lord throughout 40 years of his ministry. You would think after 40 years, maybe I'm not so good at pastoring or preaching. Maybe I should give up and find another career. Farming sounds pretty good about now. And what was, what was one of the big results of, like, when people did respond, sometimes people just ignored him. When they got irritated with him, they threw him into a well, a cistern, and left him there to die. Elijah experienced supernatural, powerful things and that all the people of God witnessed. And he suffered from depression. He also wished, he didn't die, but he wished that he could die. And so I want you to see here, you can be living in obedience to God and still suffer tremendously. Because some of us sit here in our lives and we think like, well, I'm a good person, I do good things, why am I suffering? And that's not the way it works. You can love God and still suffer. And so how many of us admire the prophets, you know? Like, we think they're pretty great. Now, how many of us actually still want to be one of them? You know, we consider them heroes, but in their days, they were treated as villains, to be very frank. And Jesus talks about that, that he, he convicts the people in Luke 11, 47, something like that, that, that you killed the people of God, you killed your forefathers, and you killed the, all the prophets. And yet, the prophets of the Old Testament, they were steadfast. They persisted in extolling the truth and the glory of God. They kept their eyes on the prize and ultimately says in verse 11 that they were blessed because their hope and their redemption is ahead of them. They, they were looking ahead towards the day of the Lord. That's the first example. Another example, verse 12. Our brother Job, one of the oldest uh, people in the Bible, if you know anything about his life, he was very godly and very successful. He parlayed his work into massive wealth. He ended up having a beautiful family, seven sons, three daughters, ten children, which it records in the book of Job. He would pray for them daily because he's a godly father and godly man. And then he had a bad day. Came a day when all of his riches were lost, plundered, or destroyed. Worse, all of his children were gathering at the oldest brother's house, having dinner together. House collapsed on them. All the children killed. I don't know about you parents. I want you to go there for a moment. There might be a moment, if something like that happened to you, it would be like, why does God hate me? Why does this happen to me? There must not be a God. And parents, I want you to picture, I mean, I can't even imagine just one of my children dying before I do. Now I want you to imagine Job. All of his children. Had a funeral. There are ten coffins, ten holes in the ground. Then he lost his health. He ended up covered head to toe in these painful, itchy sores. And the Bible records that he was sitting in the dust, scraping away at those swords with a shard of pottery just for relief. He had a pretty bad day. All that he has left is an encouraging wife and encouraging friends. If you know the story of Job, his wife says to him, after all this terrible stuff happens, why are you still holding fast? In other words, why are you steadfast? There's that key word again. And what does she say to him? Her only line in the entire story. This is a very long book of the Bible. She has one line in, her story, in the story, and she says, why don't you curse God and die? <laughs> My encouraging wife, thank you, honey, for the, the, I will take that under advisement. His friends, his friends are the worst. They are like seminary students with no ministry experience, right? And so what they want to do with Job is they want to debate theologically while he is suffering tremendously. 
And their theology is really poor. They think, well, good things happen to good people, and so only terrible sin must have ca- can cause terrible suffering. So Job, what did you do? What did you do wrong to deserve this, to get this from God? Anybody have friends like that? You get hit by a car, and they ask you, what did you do? You must have done something to cause this or to deserve this. I got hit by a car. I didn't do anything. Thanks for the prayers, though. Thanks for the comfort and encouragement. And so why does all this happen to our friend Job, our brother Job, fellow believer? And then what that Bible does is it peels back the curtain, and we get to see a glimpse of what's happening in the spiritual realm. We see Satan approaching God and making an accusation. You know what? This guy, Job, he only worships you because you bless him. He's got health, wealth, lots of kids, great family. But if you were to take it all away, he would curse you, just like his wife recommended. And so what I want you to see in the book of Job, a lot of times we think it's about suffering. We think it's about Job. It's not Job that's on trial. It's God. And the question that God is being put on trial about is, is God worthy of worship apart from the blessings that he gives? And Job's response, amazing, tremendous. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This doesn't mean that he didn't struggle. If you read the book of Job carefully, he wrestled with the pain and with the hurt and with doubts and questions. But he was steadfast in honoring God and clinging to God in the midst of the pain. And so from the prophets and from Job, we learn that godly patience is steadfast in faith because it trusts God's purposes in the end. Particularly for us, that translates to when Jesus returns. How so? It looks, Josh, it sounds like you're jumping to conclusions. Look at the end of verse 12. It says that because Job endured in his faith, he came out the other side and it reveals what? The purpose of the Lord to us. And what we see is that it wasn't just to restore more blessing to Job, although he does receive that, but to receive more of the blesser. I want you to hear that. That the purpose of the Lord wasn't just to restore more blessing, but to receive more of the blesser. It says in the, at the end of verse 12 that he experienced the Lord as compassionate. That means God came into a circumstance and says, I understand. I care. That's compassion. And that he experienced the Lord as merciful. That he's there for us. That he helps us. And then we're able to see his purpose to produce a fruit that lasts in me. So how do you respond to those moments that don't seem right, that don't make sense in life? Job struggled with moments of anguish, but not unbelief. Instead of turning his back on the Lord, he brought his concerns to the Lord. And that's what faith looks like. Now, how many of us admire Job? And I want to tell you that his life is not just something to be admired, but imitated by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And so I want to ask you, how is your steadfastness? You see, almost everyone quits too soon. On God, on their marriage, on their friends, on their church, on their life, because we're not patient. But God is patient. Often if we'll just wait, if we're steadfast, that God is working on us to become the person we're meant to be, to produce the fruit we're meant to see, 
If we're patient and persevering, we get to see a harvest of righteousness. But only if we're steadfast, only if we're enduring, only if we don't quit, quit. Then down the road, we get to see the purpose of the Lord. Ah, that's what he was doing in this, in them, in me, in us. Be steadfast in your faith, in trusting the Lord. So when the load is heavy, how's your relationships? How's your worship? And lastly, how's your word? Verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. He's talking about the, the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. And so what's happening here is James is quoting his older half-brother, his big brother Jesus, from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. He's talking about oaths, when we make a promise before God. And so what that looks like was that back then it was common in practice, if you were trying to validate a business deal between two parties, or maybe you're, you are resolving a conflict where there's a difference of opinions, then people, what they would do is, I swear to God that I will do this, or I swear to God I won't do that. But you might not keep your word because you're using the name and reputation of God to get what you want or to get out of trouble. And so Jesus says, instead of making swearing to God that this, that, and the other, but not trying to keep your word, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Otherwise, James says, you will face Jesus as your judge and as your judgment when he returns. In other words, look at it this way. Once you've made commitments before God, be steadfast in it. And what that means is that then we need to be careful in the commitments that we make, right? So that our yes will be yes and our no's no. And so think of it this way. If you're being crushed by the burdens of life, it's so easy for us to quit on the things that we committed to or commit to things that we shouldn't commit to, right? Because some of the worst decisions we, with long-lasting implications are made in stressful moments where we're reacting with fight, with fright, with flight, and fear. We're trapped in the short-term view of our pain, and we've lost sight of the long-term view of God's promises. I wonder how many of us have broken our word during moments of pain when we shouldn't have, or how many of us have made promises to people when we shouldn't have as well because we're too stressed out to think about it. And so the point here is that godly patience is steadfast and careful in its commitments to other people before God because... As we keep our eyes on Jesus and his return, that it provides an eternal perspective to the commitments that we make. So, if you made a commitment before God, yes, Lord, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to live for Jesus. Let your yes be? Yes. yes. If you made a vow before God to your spouse, let your yes be? Yes. If you made a vow to other people in front of God, let your yes be? Yes. And the reason why we think that way is because Jesus is not a God who says yes and then says no. Jesus doesn't come to us and say, I love you and I'll help you and I'll redeem you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You did what? I quit on you then. No. The way that Jesus works is instead that we love him because we love his steadfastness, the steadfastness of the Lord, that we cling to that. We cling to him as an anchor for our souls. 
So in trusting him, in honoring him, we need to carefully give our word and then keep it with steadfastness. A pastor shared this story of a painful conversation, perhaps the most painful conversation of his ministry that he had with a man who had quit on his marriage too early. And so this man says to this pastor, you know what? She is not the way that, she, that I want her to be. She's not the kind of wife that she should be. I've hung in there for X number of years. I'm sick and tired. I quit. I hit the eject button. I'm getting a divorce. But the Lord was more patient with this woman than the husband was. And so like a patient farmer, God is working on her, watering her, pruning her, nourishing her. And then fruit starts to grow out of her life. This woman begins to change and grow and bloom into the beautiful, remarkable daughter of God that she's meant to be. And then at some point, this former husband looks back, saw the purpose of the Lord, and realized, I quit too fast. And he says, this was the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life, was that I gave up too soon. The Lord wasn't done with her yet, so I don't know why I was. Listen. What I'm not saying is that there's not seasons for change that God calls us to, or that there's not biblical reasons for divorce, because there's times that we need to. But we live in a world that is hardwired to quit early, for impatience, to not endure. And so let me ask you, how are your commitments before God? You promise things that you shouldn't when you're exhausted by your current burdens because you're not thinking clearly, you're not thinking with an eternal perspective. That is the road of burnout and disappointment. Are you considering quitting commitments that you should keep? That there are vows that we made with God in the light and they do not change when our lives are in the dark. If you quit too early, you'll grieve deeply because you'll discover that the Lord is not done yet. And what causes us to quit too early is that we feel the load is too heavy, so we need to continuously go back to Jesus regularly and remember what he's done and what he will do when he returns. Is your life and is your faith vibrant in the midst of suffering? All of us know what it's like to feel when our backpack is too full, when the burden is too heavy. And some of you, I suspect, are there today. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. But I recognize that there are days when that cross feels too heavy to lift, that it's too hard for you to go on. And it's easy to start believing lies about God. Jesus, well, you're the God who's way up there, and I live down here in the reality of my pain and difficulties of life. You don't understand what I'm going through, what it's like to be treated unfairly, to struggle financially, to wrestle emotionally, to suffer physical pain and injury. You don't understand, Jesus, what it's like to have your friends turn against you or your family reject you. And Jesus says, I do understand. The place you are is the place that I've been. Because in verse 11, the Lord is what? Compassionate. He understands. And he cares. And the Lord is what? Merciful. He's there for us. He's there to help us. And our assurance 
rests on the certainty of his return and his promises because Jesus is alive and he's wonderful and he's compassionate and he's merciful to us. Jesus bore the greatest burden in history on his own back that at the cross he carries the weight of the sin of the world. That separation and death from the Father meant for us so that we wouldn't have to. And so he's able to come to us and say say to us in Matthew 11, come to me all of you who are weary and heavy burdened. Take my yoke upon you. Find rest for your soul. For my burden is easy and my yoke is light. You see, he's really good at carrying crosses. And what he doesn't promise, he doesn't promise that he's going to take your burden away. But what he does promise is that he comes alongside us. That heavy yoke you're carrying, he'll help come right next to you, help shoulder that weight, help you carry it into his kingdom together with him. If you walk side by side in step with him, yoked to him. And you can trust that if he carried the heaviest cross in all of history, that he can help carry yours too. Through the cross, we can trust that he is compassionate and merciful today. We, trust, we can trust that his return and rescue are coming tomorrow. And we can trust that his fruitfulness and fulfillment will last forever. So be patient and persevering in your suffering with people, with God, with your commitments. Draw strength from his imminent return when he is going to make all things right and all things new. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment where your word is calling to us. The reality is every single person in this room or watching from home will have a day when it's too much. The load is too much. The burden is too heavy. We cannot bear it. And so we ask for your mercy this morning. We ask that you would help us not to fix our eyes on our troubles. Because when we do, suddenly they loom, they, they completely fill up our, our vision and all we can see is the hardship and the burdens. Help us to see them in their proper perspective by looking past them to our eternity. And may the reality of Jesus' return put our burdens in perspective to know when things are too big and we need help and support to cast our cares upon Jesus and upon his family to help us. And when we simply need you to come alongside us to shoulder the burden, but help us to stop trying to do this weird thing where we think we just need to go through life, handle our business by ourselves. Thank you that we have a beautiful big God who loves us. And would you help us to come before you and bring our burdens in Jesus' name? Amen.